Who would like some lifesavers? Want some lifesavers? More and more lifesavers. Isn't that awesome? Now go ahead and open those now so you won't be rattling a little bit later. It's amazing, isn't it? Now everybody reaches out for a lifesaver. Nobody dodged, did they? We want a lifesaver. We want a life preserver. I wonder if that's why God hasn't put us here, his church on this earth, to be people who throw out uh, that life-saving message, to be people who preserve life here in this world. I think that's what God has for us, and I wonder how well we are doing with that. If you have your Bibles with you, guess where we're going back to? Yes, three-week break, back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And when you found Deuteronomy chapter 19, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy 19, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, And when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities centrally located in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Build roads to them and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. This is the rule concerning the man who kills another and flees there to save his life. One who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without malice aforethought, For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised on oath to your forefathers, and gives you the whole land he promised them because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you once again. As always, week by week, we thank you for your word that guides us and directs us. Father, we thank you again that you are God who speaks to us. You reveal yourself to us. Father, we know that what we hold in our hand is truth, the only truth, and we thank you for giving it to us. And we pray now, O Spirit of God, that you would speak to us through your word so that we may be the people that you have called us to be, and so that we may do that which you have called us to do. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we return to Deuteronomy again this week because, as we know, these are God's final instructions for his people before they enter the promised land, the land that God is giving to them. And if God's people will faithfully order their lives as God instructs them to order their lives here in Deuteronomy, then their lives will be blessed 
their lives will flourish if God's people will order their lives as God commands them to order their lives here in Deuteronomy, then they will be blessed and their lives will flourish. And that's what we want. I know that's what we want as individuals. We want our lives to flourish. I know that's what we want as a church here at Redeemer. We want our church to flourish. And so we come back week after week and we come to Deuteronomy week after week seeking to hear the truth of God, seeking to hear the direction of God for our lives so that we may flourish. We come to get God's perspective. And when I say perspective, I don't mean to imply that it's like God is part of this panel of experts, a panel discussion where the moderator says, well, well, thank you, expert one, for your perspective. Now let's move on down. Yes, now let's see. Oh, God, God, thank you. Glad you're here. What's your perspective on this topic? No, that's not what I mean. When I say perspective, I mean that God's perspective, God's vantage point is the only vantage point which is completely accurate. No flaw exists in the thinking of God. No flaw exists in the reasoning of God or the speaking of God. And that's why his perspective is the perspective from which we must view life. So when we come here together on Sunday mornings, and particularly this part of our worship service where we gather around God's Word, it's like you and I getting up out of our chair from which we view our world, and we go over, and we get in the chair with God. And we try to see our life and our world from God's perspective. We come, we gather around His word week after week to hear God's will for our lives because we so easily forget it. And that's because we live in a world that wants us to forget. The world has different ideas for us. The world has different goals that they tell us we should uh, achieve. And so it's easy to forget God's direction for our lives. And so we come here to reorient. We come here to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And we read about these cities of refuge that God requires his people to build. And we realize immediately that we can't literally fulfill this command. We're not going to literally build cities of refuge because we're no longer a theocracy with no king, with God only as our ruler. That doesn't describe us here in the States. But we can come to a passage like this and we can ask these questions. Lord, why did you command these cities to be built? What does the existence of these cities reveal about your heart? Why did you want them to be visible, tangible realities right in the midst of where your people live? What truth is it, Lord, that you're trying to communicate about yourself? What truth is it that you want us to grasp for our lives so that we will flourish as a people? Well, these cities of refuge... They're just as the name suggests, as you heard in the reading of the passage. They were cities where people could flee when their physical lives were in danger. So here's the first truth that these cities reveal to us about God. And that is that God desires to, pre- to preserve life. God desires to preserve life and therefore God acts to preserve human life. Look in verse 10. Build these cities, God says, so that innocent blood will not be shed in the land the Lord your God 
is giving you as an inheritance. See, God doesn't want innocent blood shed. God doesn't want others to be guilty of shedding innocent blood. And so he commands that these cities be built. So here in in this passage, as has been the case in in the previous passages we've been studying as we've worked through this law section, the book of Deuteronomy, God is fleshing out the Ten Commandments. The commandments that he gave to his people, Exodus chapter 20, when they were at Mount Sinai. So whenever you and I encounter the, the Ten Commandments, whenever we hear the thou shalt not part of them, that's the negative part, thou shalt not, we have to remember that there's also a positive requirement in each of those Ten Commandments. So these cities of refuge correspond to the Sixth Commandment. And the Sixth Commandment is this, thou shalt not guess. What? Kill. Thou shalt not kill. That's the negative part. The positive part of that command then is thou shalt protect life. That's the positive requirement. And our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, the catechism part is very helpful here. Now I know what happens when you mention the Westminster Confession of Faith, people glaze over. (laughs) Poke your neighbor. Poke your neighbor. Say, wake up. We're going to read from the confession. But it's true. I want to read to you from the Confession of Faith. Here's what it says. This is from the larger catechism, question 135. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Listen, this is what's required. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of any life by just defense of life against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, medicine, sleep, labor, recreations, by charitable charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and aiding the distressed and protecting the defending of the innocent. That's what's required. This is from the Heidelberg Confession. Question 105. What does God require in the sixth commandment? Answer. That neither in thoughts nor words, nor gestures. Gestures. You know, years ago, before I was a pastor, I was competing with another driver for a parking space. I was... I was clearly there first, no doubt about it. And so I got the parking space first. That didn't make the other driver happy. So the driver of the other car gestured to me. (laughs) You know the gesture we use when we're driving. But here's the funny part. When we got close enough to see one another, the gesturer was the associate pastor of the church that I attended. I don't think you'd ever read the Heidelberg Catechism. <laughs> anyway, 
that's another story. Neither in thoughts, nor words, nor gestures, much less in deeds, I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor, by myself or by another, but that I lay aside all desire of revenge, also that I hurt not myself willfully, or willfully expose myself to any danger. Question 106, but this command seems only to speak of murder. In forbidding murder, God teaches us that he abhors the causes thereof, such as envy, hatred, anger, the desire of revenge, and that he accounts all these as murder. And finally, question 107. But is it enough that we do not kill any man in the manner mentioned above? No, it's not enough. For when God forbids envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, meekness, mercy, and all kindness toward him, and to prevent hurt as much as lies in us, and that we do good even to our enemies. So, wow. Commandment number six suddenly requires a lot more than we realized, doesn't it? It's harder to obey. It's not enough just for us not to murder another person. You and I haven't done all that we can do to, com- to obey commandment number six until you and I have done all that we can do to preserve life, our lives and the lives of others. We think about preserving our own life. What does that mean? It means like what we eat. It means how we treat our bodies. Cities of refuge, life preservers, that's what we're called to be. So whatever idea that you have this morning of the good life, whatever your picture of a flourishing life is, if it doesn't include preserving life, your own life included, then you're on the wrong track. And this has enormous implications for us. Because if, if we're living to preserve life, we have to realize this, that we are not our own. And that's what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19. Listen, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We don't belong to us. We belong to God. And until we believe this truth, until we act on preserving life in this way, we're not going to flourish. You know, college is getting ready to crank back up just a week from now. How do you think most incoming freshmen and returning students define the good life? Listen, they've been waiting all summer, all summer to leave home and start living the good life. But it seems to me that how they feel on Sunday morning after having lived a good life on Friday and Saturday night, should physically, no kidding, should physically tell all of us that this is not a flourishing life. This is not the good life, but we are so disoriented in our thinking and our our ideas that we live that way anyway. (laughs) This is the good life. It's miserable. It's not the good life. It's trite, but true example of the wrong definition of living the good life. It's an example of not preserving life. Additionally, whatever goals we have for a flourishing life or a good life, it cannot include using other people to achieve those goals. It means that we never denigrate someone else to elevate ourselves. That's not preserving their life. So whatever goal you and I are going after in our lives, whatever that is, whatever the flourishing life is, 
in some way, that life has got to look like serving others more than being served by them. It's got to look more like considering others better than ourselves. We are called to be lifesavers, life preservers. That's God's call on our lives. Now look with me in verse two and verse three. We get more description here about these cities. Verse two says, set aside three cities centrally located. Then verse three says, build roads to them. Centrally located with roads built to them. Why does God give us this detail? I think God is showing us here how important it is that we preserve life. Clearly, God wants these cities accessible to everyone. God doesn't want them located in some obscure place where no one can find them. No, he wants them accessible and he wants roads leading right to them. Now, you all know where I'm from. I'm from the mountains. And when you drive on some of those steep and curvy roads, it's not uncommon that you pass the other road that you're looking for. And you drive and you drive and suddenly you realize, oh, I've missed my turn. So you're trying to find a place to turn around that doesn't end up going over the side of the mountain. And you turn around and you drive back. And then you end up all the way back to the place you started and say, I've missed my turn again. So you turn around and you drive back and back and on and on it goes because you can't find the road. Now, I understand that because in the mountains, they used to have these contraptions called stills, as in moonshine. And so accessibility is the last thing that they wanted. That's the opposite of what God is saying here. Centrally located, ease of access. That's what God wants for these cities. Then look in verse 8. God says, if the people are faithful and he enlarges their territory, they are to build three more cities. You getting the point? Life preservation is important to God. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. And if you and I will truly flourish and truly live the good life, it's got to be with this perspective of human life. Every person we meet created in the image of God. Every life is valuable. But our culture constantly sends us a contrary message that human life is perhaps disposable, that human life is perhaps tradable. I don't know if you saw the video clip recently. It's been in the news It's an interview with a vice president of Planned Parenthood. People go undercover and they they have this interview with this vice president. And they pretend to be interested in purchasing from her uh, the body parts of aborted babies. The whole conversation takes place while this woman is sipping her wine and eating her salad. I didn't transcribe the conversation, so I don't have it exactly here. But the vice president of Planned Parenthood is trying to get these people to name the price that they are willing to pay for these body parts. And the people say, no, we don't want to name the price. You name the price. And the vice president said, well, you know, whoever names the the price first is usually the one who loses. (laughs) Then she goes on to discuss the possibility. She says, you know, I don't think it would be too difficult to have expectant mothers 
to, to agree to a different procedure, a procedure that will perhaps uh, make body parts more intact, and then they would be more valuable to you. That's the discussion that took place. 55 million aborted image of God bearing babies since Roe versus Wade. You know, we're, we're deceived if we think that doesn't impact us. We're deceived if we think that doesn't have an impact on the society around us and how the society and the culture around us views human life. It impacts us deeply, how we treat each other. When the idea exists that human life is a disposable commodity to be traded. But scripture always reorients us, doesn't it? And Deuteronomy 19 reorients us to the value of human life and to our need to preserve it, to be cities of refuge. Human life is not disposable, and it's not tradable. In his commentary on Deuteronomy, McConville talks about the irreducibility of human life. And he writes, there is no other currency into which human life may be translated. And I bet you the the members of Mother Emmanuel will attest to that. You know, I haven't confirmed it, but I've heard that $10 million has now been raised for that church. But I imagine that those who lost a family member in that tragedy would say, so what? Because given the choice of $10 million or the choice of having their June 17th morning life back, I bet you without exception they would all choose to have their life back as it was the morning of June 17th. Human life cannot be traded for anything else because it's created in the image of God. And human beings, we are the pinnacle of God's creative power. You know, our culture doesn't believe that either. Many people in our culture give their lives to preserving land. And that's great. I am all for it. God calls us to be good caretakers of the land that he has given to us. Many people commit their lives to preserving animals. And that's great. I'm all for that as well. Because we should responsibly care for the animals that God has entrusted to our care. When you look at the beauty and the majesty of creation, when you look at the the land and the animals that we protect, they seem more majestic than human life, don't they? More important than human life. Bigger than human life. And I think King David felt the same way as we feel. Because he writes in Psalm 8, Lord, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Who are we in light of the majesty of creation? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's human life that God has crowned with glory and with honor. And so I struggle, I struggle greatly when I see celebrities 
on the front lines, supporting, promoting, or at least defending the killing of unborn babies. And then those same celebrities are given primetime spots on television where they trot out the, the cute little dogs, cute little animals, and some of them are maimed, and say, won't you please help? Won't you please give to save these animals? See, we're mixed up. Are we mixed up? Is it just me? It's so confusing to me. It's human life that is created in the image of God, and that's why human life is worth preserving. In these next few minutes, these last few minutes, last few minutes, I want us to think together just a little bit about what it means to be in the image of God. What does it mean? Some people think that our ability to speak is what makes us in the image of God. And it's true that God is a speaking God and we're forever grateful for that, aren't we? He spoke the world and everything in it into being. He himself became the word. He took on flesh and he came and lived among us. God spoke to those dry bones in the book of Ezekiel, said, come to life, and they did. Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, and he spoke to him. He said, Lazarus, came forth and come forth, and Lazarus lived. And he's spoken life into us. So we're thankful that God is a speaking God, aren't we? Some people think that our ability to think and to reason is what makes us in the image of God. Certainly God is volitional. He has a will. Scripture says his will is good and perfect and well-pleasing. But our sovereign God has a plan in place so that not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the will of God. He's given us a will. So he has uniquely given us the ability to be logical beings that can reason. Otherwise, he would have said to us, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. But is there more to be being in the image of God than this? In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Dr. James Smith, who also wrote Letters to a Young Calvinist. I don't know if some of you all have read that. But he writes that the image of God is not some de facto property of Homo sapiens. And this is what is interesting. Rather, the image of God is a task. The image of God is a mission. And then he, in his book, quotes Dr. Richard Middleton, who writes that the image of God designates the royal office or calling of human beings as God's representatives and agents in the world, granted authorized power to share in God's rule of administration of the earth's resources and creatures. Creation in Genesis 1 is not complete or very good until God creates humanity on the sixth day in the image of God in order to represent and mediate the divine presence on earth. Creation is the sanctuary, and humanity is commissioned to liturgical service in the cosmic sanctuary. Cities of refuge. That's why God has placed us here. And truly understanding the image of God, then it takes us so far beyond ourselves and our lives. And when we understand the image of God rightly, it should move us way beyond our interest and sometimes our obsession with just our own individual salvation. And it takes us to to this office, this task 
to this mission to which God has called us, bearing the image of God in the world. And it helps us understand what is at stake when we don't take up this mission, when we don't take up this office. So in addition to everything else that may be true about the image of God, the image of God is also this task, this mission that God has given to us. Think about the world right now for just a minute. If we were all to go away, all of us, or if we were to stop believing, if we were to stop worshiping, if we were to stop praying, if we were to stop going into all the world, what would happen? You know, our culture loves to bash police officers. It's like the thing to do nowadays. It's become a national pastime. And we love to beat police officers up in the press. And we love to make examples of the bad ones. And there are bad ones. Just like there are bad teachers and there are bad preachers and there are bad husbands. And there are bad wives as well. We call them the pigs. We call them popo. But take them away. Remove them completely from our city. Is that what we would want? Jesus said in Matthew 5, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. God has made you and me, we are the salt. We are the preservatives in this world. Jesus said so. Through us, you can't abdicate. Through us, When we obey the call of God, it's amazing. God prevents the rot and the decay that would consume if we were not here. Do you believe that? Take us away. Or at least get us to ignore the call of God in our lives. And what happens to the world around us? There's rot and decay. Because where are the preservers of life? So I don't know what goal you're setting for yourself. I don't know what you consider the good life. I don't know what you consider the flourishing life, but I call each of us this morning to consider this. Every one of us. If the goals that we have for our lives don't include preserving life by the way we live our own lives and the lives of others, if the goals that we have in our lives don't allow us time to take up this task, this uh, mission of being image bearers in every part of our lives, if we're not loving and serving and even suffering for the world, then we are reaching for the wrong goal. And we're expending a lot of energy, and when we get to the goal that we're trying to get to, we're going to find out that it's not satisfactory because it's not what God has called us to do. It's not what he has created his people for. He's called us to himself, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of the world, literally. God has saved you, not just for you. He saved you for the sake of the world. Please have that perspective on life and take your place as a life preserver, as a city of refuge, those ancient cities of refuge, centrally located. Where do you place your life in relation to others? Do you hide from them or do you say, here I am? Are you where people can find you? And when they find you, have they found the gospel? When they find you, Have they found words of life, the only words that can truly save and preserve their lives?
the ancient roads, ancient cities, roads that made them easily accessible. How accessible are you to others? Do you have time? I know you have time. Do you take time to welcome people into your life for Jesus' sake? We must be life preservers. Let's pray. Father, do pray now that where you need to do it, you would break us free from ourselves. Man, it's so difficult as Americans, Lord, not to be self-centered and narcissistic, not to constantly bash our culture, Lord, but it's so true because we're so conditioned by everything around us. Even as we walk up and down King Street and look in the windows, there we see the goals that the world has for us. Be like this. Look like this. Do whatever you have to do to achieve that goal. Lord, we bring it into the church and we make salvation all about ourselves. Oh, the Lord has saved me. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord, that you have saved us. But Lord, help us realize it's for a much bigger purpose than just for ourselves. It's way beyond that. When you save us, that's the beginning. You leave us in this world so that we can be these cities of refuge, uh, life preservers, life savers as we hold out the words of the gospel. Lord, we're here to bear your image in this world. And we have not been bearing your image. We ask your forgiveness. When we realize that we are surrounded by people in our lives who may be shocked If they were told that we were believers in Christ because of the way we live, we ask your forgiveness for that. I pray that you'd help us take up this task that you have put before us, this mission to bear your image in this world. Lord, preserve the world, preserve the lives around us, through us, we pray. We need your spirit to do it. We need you to give us a willing heart. So Lord, as we make ourselves available to you, I pray that you would use us in great and mighty ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.